Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we finish our coverage of The Regulators discussing chapters 12 and 13. Let's start the show. The Regulators concludes as it began, with characters being shot. Seth and Audrey are shot, but not before Seth is able to trick Tack and defeat it. The survivors on Poplar Street are left to deal with the destruction of their homes as the illusion of the town of desperation fades away. In our final interstitial, a letter from the past seems to indicate that Seth and Audrey have moved on to another plane and a happier existence, it would seem. Definitely. Not being tormented by a demon and having their neighbors shot and killed. And all the Chef Boyardee you could eat. A little slice of heaven in upstate New York. Well, we reached the ending of this book, Sean. Do you think uh, Bachman stuck the landing? I will say that this book wasn't quite perfect. And I realized as we went on that a lot of it dealt with the fact that these characters weren't really fully developed. And the ones that we spent the most time with really sort of didn't matter at the end of the story. Yeah. The story ends focused on Seth and Audrey, and Johnny Marinville is there to witness it, but he doesn't seem to have any real impact on the end results of what happens. And ultimately, those Poplar Street characters were just sort of largely interchangeable, I think. Both you and I had said that we had to refer to our notes often to figure out who's who and what's what because they didn't have very many characteristics. Now, having said all that, I, I didn't mind where the story ended up. So did Bachman stick the landing? I'll, I'll give it a prohibitive yes. Yeah, I'll echo most of what you just said there. I think that he did stick the landing. One of his knees bent, got a little wobbly there, <laughs> but he managed to straighten it out without moving a foot. The Russian judge lowered it to an eight, but everybody else gave him nines. Yeah. The most unforgivable sin was not that the characters were underdeveloped. It was that they were interchangeable. The fact that I didn't really care what was happening to these characters by the end of the story, uh, that was the most frustrating for me. All throughout the book, I kept being frustrated that I can't keep track of who's who and there, there isn't enough going on here. And I wanted to and expected to eventually learn enough about these characters that I did know one from another and did care about how their stories might end. But by the time the book concluded, I was sort of like, felt like they didn't even need to be in the story at all. Right. That's kind of a bummer. But otherwise, this was a pretty cool story about a demon that takes over a special child and wreaks havoc on a neighborhood and then is ultimately defeated by the only person capable of defeating him, the child himself. Right. Yeah, I kept making guesses throughout the story, like which one of these characters is going to be the important one who brings about change? First, I thought it was going to be Kali and Trajan. Nope. Nope, he, gets, he, he he went out quick. And then Steve Ames seemed to rise to the top for a little bit there. And 
you know, he's the outsider who comes into town and maybe he'll be important, but nope. Nope. And then Bachman made a big point of saying that Cynthia, the the woman who worked at the convenience store, had two color hair and so did one of the moto cops that Seth seemed interested in and Tax seemed interested in. I'm like, oh, maybe that's going to be the person who was able to convince him to calm down. But nope, that didn't happen. And then finally, maybe even Johnny Marinville is the stand-in for King, the writer mm-hmm. with a, 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 a troubled past. But again, he was there when things happened, but he didn't seem to be like the impetus for any of that. So maybe that's Bachman subverting our expectations, which we'll talk about a little bit about here in a minute. But like you, I sort of thought, hey, this still worked in a way that I was happy with. Yeah. And maybe this just would have been an even better book if it had just been about Audrey and Seth or entirely from their perspective. The best parts of this book were the Audrey chapters and the interstitials that gave us the background to build up who Audrey was and what her struggle had been both before, during, and sometime after the events of the book. Mm. So even though the time on Poplar Street is quite brief uh, between the, the front and back cover of the book, there is a lot of time that passes in these interstitials. And those are the most important parts of the story. And to kind of echo back to something I said in a previous episode that where the B plot seemed to become more important than the A plot, that's what I'm suggesting here, that we just have the B plot. Yeah. The A part could be in the background. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to keep track of all 20 characters and wonder what they, who they are, what they're doing, and, and what their importance is going to be to the story. Because ultimately, it's Audrey and Seth working together, mostly Seth, to bring about this change. And really building up that relationship that you're not sure that they have and that Audrey's not even sure at first that she has with this boy. You know, she brought in her nephew after his parents and the rest of his family were killed and he has special needs and he's autistic and she's never quite sure if she has a connection with him. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that it is ultimately that connection that's so important that he's able to communicate with her telepathically and they're able to hide what they're thinking about from TAC, and they're able to come up with this scheme that ultimately works to to full TAC, get him out of the body, and ultimately sacrifice themselves mm-hmm. so that he can't come back and that he's stuck and then find another place for the two of them to go where they will be happy and they'll have the life that they missed out on. Absolutely. So I mentioned that Bachman slash King Maybe they were subverting our expectations here in what the story was going to be by introducing these characters that we thought were going to be important and that ultimately weren't. Mm. And it made me almost think that Richard Bachman is Alan Smithy. So we've we've seen Alan Smithy's name on a Motocops script. Yeah. We've seen writers who have moved to different places. So Johnny Marinville has gone from being a well-regarded literary writer to an author of children's books. And King himself has created this character that he has killed off once, Richard Bachman, but then, you know, this magical book that they found and have brought back and they brought back it. And I'm wondering if King has ultimately created this book to make a bigger commentary about things that are going on. And he's doing it through the Bachman identity because that gives him a little bit more leeway. But ultimately, he's able to comment on things like, hey, maybe TV's not such a great thing. Mm. And I wonder if that's one of the bigger themes of this book a lot of what's happening here 
is because the demon and Tack and and Seth watch a lot of westerns and motocops where they're shoot 'em up and death and destruction, and as a result, that comes into the real world. And King is anti this. Obviously, he doesn't want this to happen. And maybe saying like, "This is very simple scripting. It's very black and white, and there's no gray, and it's just not very well done art form." Yeah, I dig it. I like the idea of Bachman as King's version of Alan Smithy where he's like, I don't want to put my name on this book, but I want to say some things and I'm going to do that through the book's structure. I'm going to do that through the book's character building or lack thereof, very intentional. And I'm going to do that by writing a name that isn't mine on the cover. And all of that feeds into that singular call out that he's saying, let's not all be couch potatoes. Yeah. And in this book, Tack is like the ultimate couch potato. It's one of the few things that truly distracts him, where he will just sit there and vegetate for hours and hours and hours until finally the body he is occupying or Seth needs food or needs the bathroom. Right. And only then does he say, all right, fine, let's go refuel, etc. And then right back to the TV. That's exactly what King is railing against here. And he's showing us the worst that TV is. Yep. We have, since this book has been written, we've gone through this renaissance of what TV can be. And there is amazing TV programming to watch and has been for more than a decade now. And King has been watching it with us. But he wrote this book before that existed. Mm -hmm. And there was some decent TV, but a lot of it was a lot like Motocops 2200. A lot of it sucked. And so if you're just going to sit there and watch endless reruns or just keep watching the same movie over and over again, you're probably watching some dreck like this and King's not having it. Nope. He makes a point of saying that when we get into Seth's mind and he's able to go into that special place, Seth says that he has outgrown the motocops in Westerns. Hmm. So it's not even him that's interested in this anymore. He might've been at one point and that's why Tack started watching it, but Seth has moved beyond that in some way, and Tack hasn't, right? Tack, as you said, is the ultimate couch potato who's going to sit there and the rest of the world's just going to become a mess because he's so focused on the TV. But Seth realizes that there's more out there. The big piece of it is his relationship with his aunt. Mm -hmm. He's willing to put all that behind. And so like, even though he has special needs and even though he seems to have loved the motocops and Westerns, it was a big part of his growing up and, and what he played with. He's since outgrown that. I got to think that that was intentional by King, like that this is just yet another commentary on TV. And then as you and I were talking about this, I wonder if there's a second layer to this, Mm. that King is almost also saying that I've also outgrown Bachman. Oh, I like that. And and he drew us into, he was so good about it, right? Like he's got that, that first opening scene when we've got this camera view of the kid riding his bike down and we're introduced all these characters and all of a sudden there's all this death and destruction and these vans running around and shooting people and there's a sugar high to that that i think both you and i were like whoa where's this book going this is cool Mm. and by the end it was almost too much and i wonder if that was king trying to subvert our expectations even more and potentially even saying this might have been something bachman would write where there's lots of death 
ultimately maybe the whole street will be killed. That's what Bachman would have done. But I'm king yep. and I'm doing a little bit something different. And so I'm moving I'm moving past that nihilism that Bachman inhabits. And that's why this will be it for Bachman. I've I've outgrown him just like Seth has outgrown the motocops. Yeah, a little bit like a test. Oh, you like that that violence. You like seeing half of the residents of this block be murdered for no apparent reason. Well, you just failed my test. Yep. Because that's not what this book's about. And that's not what I'm about as a as an artist anymore. So this is like me showing you that you shouldn't be paying attention to these kinds of stories. They're not good for you. Let me show you what I can do with a different book. Mm. I'm hoping that that's what he explores with desperation. Yeah, we'll see. Where I understand there are a lot of connections. So it's like remix with a different author. This time it's Bachman. Next time it's King. What does he have to say then? Yeah, we will find out together. The connection between those two books kind of makes me think of Dark Tower Thinnies. Did you find any thinnies in this final chunk of the book? All right. So in that last letter that a woman writes, and she's the one who encounters the ghost, she writes to her friend that you're the only person I know who's read not just one copy of The Shining to Tatters, but two. So here we've got Bachman <laughs> writing about a Stephen King book in the in the book itself. So I love that thinny of of going into The Shining. So not exactly related to the Dark Tower, but that metafiction of King writing as Bachman writing about King. Yeah, I love it for all those reasons. But I also get a chuckle out of it that it's probably just easier for King from a copyright or trademark perspective <laughs> to use a title of his own books rather than somebody else's. Yeah. There's a, a an image here about a plate, and it's when Audrey talks about how she broke her mother's favorite plate. And this was not a deliberate thing. It was an accidental thing, and it really upset her. And it had a Courier and Ives sledding scene on it. It made me think of the blue plate that Detta smashes in Drawing of the Three, mm. that that plate itself represents something traumatizing to her. And she deliberately breaks it because she hates the people connected to the plate. While one was a, an act of defiance and one was an act of, I guess, exhaustion and, and oppression, they are both plates being broken under extraordinary circumstances thought of that as a thinny what do you think i thought that was fantastic i did not pick up on it at all and when you share that with me i'm like oh there's something there for sure and i don't know if king has something in his past with plates that that has lingered with him all these years but it it can't be a coincidence and it is a fantastic thinny oh well thank you my other one is fairly straightforward and i alluded to it in the intro to this Again, in the letter, the author says, I think about what Adrian said about how the ghosts in Mother and Son Meadow might live on a slightly different plane, maybe the astral kind, maybe the temporal kind. And, you know, this is just a other worlds than these type of deal where there is another level of the tower now where potentially Audrey and Seth reside that is different. You know, not only have they changed their location from Wentworth, Ohio to upstate New York, but they've also gone into the past to where Audrey had this safe space that Seth helped her discover and find, and now they live there permanently. Yeah, I dig it. Anytime we start thinking about levels of the tower or alternate realities or 
anything like that. We're definitely in thinny territory. So after thoroughly impressing you with my previous thinny, <laughs> I'm going to unimpress you by telling you my last thinny, which is that the letter that we get at the end where we learn about the mother and son meadow is from somebody named Patricia Allen. And she wrote the letter on June 19th, 1986. This is one of my things where I call it out. Like King could have written any date for this letter as long as it was in 1986. And he chose the 19th of the month. Yep. Crazy, crazy, crazy. All right. Well, this is a segment that has come and gone and come back, but there's a couple of good moments in this last section of the book that we needed to call out. So let's do some yucking it up. Shall I kick us off? Yes, let's do it. So this one, not only was it disgusting enough to make it into the yucking it up section, but I thought it was hilarious. (laughs) So the line is, at one moment, Kim Geller is standing at the end of the Carver's Walk. At the next, she's entirely gone. No, not quite gone. Her sneakers are still there, and her feet are still inside them. (laughs) (laughs) So it gets worse, because then, a split second later, something that could be a bucket of dark, silty water, but isn't, hits the front of the Carver house, and that's her... Everything Uh besides her feet just spraying all over the house. (laughs) And then when people have to go out, like I think Audrey and and Johnny like leave and they see all that, it's just, yeah, not not pleasant at all. I'm just picturing what kind of gun can just entirely vaporize a person into a bucket of silty water. It's a motocops gun. It's in the imagination of a child. Ah, that's why it's so effective. The last moment in this is tax downfall is when um, Cammy Reed's head explodes. Tack has entered her and can't be in there. It's too much for him. And her head starts to expand and eventually explodes hot fragments. Some still pulsing with life pelt Johnny's face. Yikes. I, I had an image of uh total recall when there's that sequence where, Arnold's outside of the dome in Mars and his head starts to grow and it, uh-huh. and then eventually it explodes scanner style, I guess, in the, in this uh, story, Cammy Reed's head. So, all right, well, let's thank our patrons. Our patrons support the show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. Visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower to learn more. Jay, we have three folks who have been patrons for over a year that we're celebrating today. Steve, Travis, and Jonathan, thanks again for your ongoing support. We really appreciate it. That's fantastic. We love uh, having you as patrons and keep on keeping on. We also have a brand new patron, Sean. Whoa, love it. Somebody who goes by the handle of Matron Bob joined recently at the Gunslinger level. So thanks there, Matron Bob. Excellent. Thanks for being aboard. We hope you enjoyed the bonus content and we appreciate the support. It is time for some fun stuff. Fun stuff. So I said that Steve Ames was one of my favorite characters, and we talked before about his approach to life, which is no problem, man. No problem. And there's even a Latin influence of no problem, and that's nulo impedimentum. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I didn't count, but there has to be at least three different languages then with the no problem. There's English. 
pretty sure there was Spanish in there somewhere, and now Latin. It also sounds like it could be like a Harry Potter spell. Yes. Nulo impedimentum. The only thing I had in fun stuff was a line that I liked a lot. And this is when Seth is imagining the creation of a mine shaft in his mind. The shaft goes deep into some black earth, which he supposes is himself, then rises again towards the surface, like a hope. And it was the like a hope that really caught me there. I didn't know if this should be fun stuff or if it should be a thinny, but after the events of of the regulators, the neighbors all come out on the street and they're looking around and they see something in the sky. It's a it's a cloud and it hung over downtown Columbus, connected to Ohio by a gauzy umbilicus of rain, and it made the shape of a gigantic cowboy galloping on a storm-colored stallion. The horse's grotesquely elongated snout pointed east toward the Great Lakes. Its tail stretched out long toward the prairies and deserts. Now, Bachman has never been to Ohio as far as his widow is concerned, that it was simply flyover territory. Mm -hmm. But if you could picture where Columbus is, and if you could go east from Columbus, there is no Great Lake anywhere to the east of Columbus. Like the biggest body of water you hit going east from Columbus is the Atlantic Ocean. The Great Lake Erie is to the north. I didn't know if this was Bachman just screwing up or if this was like a alternate world. All the directions are screwed up like we dealt with in the Dark Tower series. Yeah, I, I think this is just Bachman, a flyover country guy, not knowing which way is up. Because that's where the Great Lakes are. They're north north <laughs> of all of Ohio. It yep. doesn't matter if they're in Columbus or Toledo or Cincinnati. The Great Lakes are north yep. of the entire state. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't matter which way this gigantic cowboy cloud is going. We know which way the Great Lakes are. Yes. My last one is just a, a quick line that I had never heard before, but I want to introduce into my daily life, and that's shit fire and save matches. <laughs> it's just a great little uh, expletive there, right? I love it. Yeah, I've heard shit fire, but I've never heard the save matches part. It's great. But that's what makes it magical, right? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. All right. Well, as we like to do, let's talk about our final thoughts on this book. Uh, Jay, I'm going to go through a couple of quick reviews. So Goodreads has it at 3.7 stars. Library Thing Readers rate it at 3.38 stars. So middling reviews. Publisher Weekly had a starred review of this book. This devilishly entertaining yarn of occult mayhem married to Mordant social commentary is pure king. The story rarely flags after the beginning scene evoking powerful tension and at times emotion. The premise owes a big unacknowledged debt to the classic Twilight Zone episode, It's a Good Life, which I mentioned before, Jay, that's the Bill Moomy send people mm. to the cornfield uh, episode. But King makes hay in this story in which anything can happen and does, including the warping of space-time and the, the savage deaths of much of his large cast. It's kind of a backhanded compliment there when it says the story rarely flags evoking powerful tension and, at times, emotion. Yeah, well. <laughs> Every once in a while. Now, I also found a New York Times review. This was a 
a fairly extensive review. Not only was it regulate the regulators, but also Desperation and The Green Mile, all of which came out in the same year. And the Times said, although his novels seldom advance a single memorable sentence, ouch, yikes, Mr. King harnesses a formidable facility for originating unforgettable situations and characters. The regulators forsakes even the promise of genre play for generic and terminable tax savagery. A crafty short story lost under a landslide of print, the regulator suggests even more than its weighty twin, the mountain that gave birth to a mouse. So uh, the Times did not like it so much. They were a much b- bigger fan of Green Mile, but uh, what are you going to do? I'm, I'm interested to think, uh, what did you think of the book, Jay? What are your final thoughts? Well, first, I'll agree with the Times that the Green Mile is a superior book. It's a way better book. But this isn't about the Green Mile. I thought overall, this was an enjoyable read. Despite the lack of character development that I mentioned earlier in our episode here, overall, I had fun. I enjoyed going through the the plot with these characters and trying to figure out what was going to happen next. And it was an interesting story that King put together introducing this demon that uh, I've never really encountered something like that before in his books. Yeah. I liked it more than I thought I was going to, especially based on those middle sections. And I could get where the times was coming from saying that it's a short story lost under a landslide of print. I do think this could have been condensed, but you could say that for a lot of King books. And I also had some apprehensions early on about how Bachman and King were going to treat the autistic character. But I think by the end, I was very sort of impressed for how well they handled it. And yeah, I I, I think I, I liked it as well. Obviously, it's not one of the top tier King books by any stretch of the imagination. But I also liked how he was working through a lot of the ideas we we're going to see in the Dark Tower with this meshing of different genres and, and playing around with that. I think having read the Dark Tower series first, you could see it done better. Mm-hmm. And if I had read this first, I might have been like, oh, he's just reusing what he did from uh, the regulators. But having read it this way, I could see that this is sort of like a proto working those details out. So yeah, but I'm, I, I would give it a, a thumbs up. Same here. Thumbs up. So Jay, what else is going on outside of Stephen King in the dark tower world? I recently finished watching the suicide squad. I enjoyed it. I was kind of surprised. I, I watched it Mostly just so that I could be tuned into the zeitgeist because there are these tentpole movies that keep coming out. Mostly they're Marvel movies, but this is one of the big DC movies that if you don't see the movie, there's a lot of talk online and social media and stuff like that and around the virtual water cooler. I didn't want to have to avoid it and I didn't want to miss out. So I basically just took my medicine. I'll watch this thing because I watched the first one and it was awful. It was a terrible, terrible movie. But I watched this one and not only was I pleasantly surprised that it was better than the first one, I actually enjoyed myself. Mm. So if you haven't seen it yet, perhaps because you're avoiding it for fear that it's going to be just as bad as the first one, don't worry. If you like the, the goofy, fun action that is in Guardians of the Galaxy, James Gunn brings that same magic to these DC characters, and it's actually a cool movie. It's not as good as Guardians, 
but I think he was still a little hamstrung with the starting point he needs to work from, which you'll understand once you watch the movie. But overall, it's worth your time, and it's a fun movie. I am not going to take away anything that you said, but I watched The Suicide Squad and it wasn't for me. All right. Not saying it's for everybody. So that's The Suicide Squad, available in theaters and on HBO. How about you, Sean? So I found out, and this was news that came out like a month ago, so this is a pre-Other Worlds than these type of thing, that there is finally going to be a Fletch reboot. Oh. I was a fan of the original Fletch, which came out in the mid-80s, and I'm a really big fan of the Gregory McDonald books about Fletch. I've, I read them all. There's a spinoff series called Flynn, and, and that's interesting too. And there is finally going to be a reboot, this time starring John Hamm as Fletch and reuniting him with John Slattery from Mad Men. Cool. What is great about this is that Fletch has been in the talks of being rebooted since the 90s. Kevin Smith was going to do one in the 90s. And then I think Jason Sudeikis was going to do one Hmm. in the past few years. And it just nothing ever came around. And this time it's for real. It's actually shooting now, I believe. And it's going to be based on the book Confess Fletch, uh, which is one of the sequels to the original Fletch book. And so I'm pretty excited about this because a big fan of Fletch. And I think after I finish my John D. McDonald read through of the Travis McGee books, I will pick up my Gregory McDonald Fletch books and give those another try in, in preparation for the movie. So, Well, that just shows how little I knew about Fletch. I've seen the, the first one, of course, but I just assumed it was a Chevy Chase comedy vehicle. No idea it was based on a series of books. Yeah, and if you go to the bookstore, they're right where the John D. McDonald's were, except Gregory McDonald, John D. McDonald. Just pick them all up. Any McDonald book, you'll be fine. Old McDonald. Old McDonald. Ronald McDonald. It's all good. All right. That's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower. On our next episode, join us as we start our coverage of desperation with part one. For Jay Russo. I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Approach to life, which is no problem, man. Right? No problem. No problem. And there's even a latin influence of no problem and that's nulo impedimentum nulo try that again nulo <laughs> impedimentum and yeah, that's uh, pretty cool yeah i could just imagine a bunch of romans and togas running around going nulo impedimentum <laughs> nulo i can't freaking do it <laughs> and what are we gonna do about the poor fuck the poor <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.